here this morning. We're speaking from the book of Haggai, the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament, one of the 12 minor prophets. We're speaking about the greater, the greater glory. There's an unfolding here in Haggai of the, the plan and the purposes of God for the temple. The temple had been demolished in 586, and then the people of God are finally allowed to start coming back under Cyrus. And at first they begin, after a couple of years of being back, 538, they come back, 536. They're working on the foundation. The foundation of the temple is complete, but they don't keep going. They don't keep working on the temple. In fact, the, uh, the building of, of the temple comes to a, a screeching halt. So here they had come back, 50,000 of them from exile in this first wave, excited. These are, these are committed followers of God. They're excited about the things of God. They're excited about the, the fact that they get to come home after they have been in exile for 70 years, some of them remember the first temple and the fact that it was so glorious and exquisite. And now they come back and they are working on this second temple, but they end up stopping. And they end up stopping because they have adversaries, they have enemies who are coming against them, who are discouraging them. So they start building it, but they do not complete it. They start the, the, the work of God, they start the building of the temple, but they do not get to the end of it. In fact, if you go back with me to Ezra chapter 4, we see what happens in Ezra 4, the fourth chapter. Now when the adversaries, that is verse 1, of Judah and Benjamin, so here are the two tribes of what was the southern kingdom. And the adversaries hear that they're building a temple, that they had returned and were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached in verse 2, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, he's the descendant of David, direct descendant of David, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build a house with you. So we could say in today's terms, these are non-Christians, these are non-believers, and they're saying, come, let us, um, let us help build the temple. We want to come join you in this marvelous work. And uh, by the way, there are a lot of people today who are not Christians who are trying to join in the, the building of the church. And there are Christians, there are churches who are saying, hey, we're going to build a church and we're going to do it the world's way. We're going to appeal to the world by using the world's philosophy, by using the world's marketing methods, by trying to appeal to people without preaching the truth, without preaching the actual gospel. So we'll water things down and we'll make it palatable to all who come in. So you have this this group of people who are mixed. Now, the church welcomes anyone. We've said a million times in this church, if you're an atheist, you're welcome here. But you're, you're welcome to listen to the truth. We're not going to compromise the truth here. We don't, we don't change the message. We're not out taking a survey saying, now, 
Uh, how are we going to be more liked in the community if we preach these certain things? There have uh, come into this church, we've had lesbians in this church, and uh, we've had people who have lived together for many years who are still not married. In fact, we have, we have people coming to this church in that situation right now. And we love them, and we, we thank God for them, and we continue to preach at them. Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon said that there, are, there were unbelievers in his congregation and he said, um, Sunday after Sunday, he said, they know I'm preaching right at them. And he said, and I am. And he said, and they thank me for it. Now, we never have a sermon devised for one person or one family or one group of people. But we know that the word of God, as it is preached in its clarity and in its power, is going to hit certain people right between the eyes. And so the question is, are we going to mix things up? and say that we're going to join hands with, with unbelievers and try to figure out how to do things in God's church the world's way. That simply doesn't work. Our hearts should break when we hear about uh, pastors and churches where they say, well, we're going to have an imam come in, we're going to learn about his God, and we're going to have the, 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 the Jewish uh, rabbi come in, and he's going to talk a little bit about his God, and we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus, and we're all going to just talk about how we're all kind of just serving the same God with different names. Listen, that kind of thing, that ecumenical kind of spirit should break our hearts. We should say, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. I remember being involved for some time with the, the National Day of Prayer and being one of the lone voices saying, look, we're not going to have priests come and pray on the same stage with evangelical believers who believe that it's by grace through faith alone uh, that we stand, that we have come to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Listen, that is a very controversial uh, stance. And by the way, we're going to get some heat for that. And we have, and we don't have a condescending, critical tone of we're better than them. Oh, no, no, no. It's just that we have received the grace of God. And our allegiance is not to the world, but our allegiance is to the authority of Scripture. It is written, and it's to the authority of God himself. So we cannot join hands with unbelievers and say, we're going to do things like you and expect dead carnal flesh to join with those who are living in the Spirit of God and actually get anything spiritual done. That's impossible. We'd rather have a church where we're doing things at least to the best of our ability by God's grace, in his power and in his strength, by his spirit, according to the word of truth. And we'll let the chips fall where they may. So if we have 60 people on a Sunday morning or 80 people on a Sunday morning or 90 people on a Sunday morning or 35, we'd rather have that than 3,000 people where everybody's confused about what gospel we preach and whether we're going to join hands with those who are unbelievers. So we say to the unbelieving world, and if you're not saved here this morning, we say to you, welcome. And we hope that you feel the love of Christ here, and we also hope that you feel the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit so that you might find what we have found, and that is freedom in Jesus Christ alone. There's freedom in Jesus. And that's why we preach this, because we believe in Jesus. He's the name above all names. We have found that our chains have 
fallen off when we come to Jesus and we repent of our sins and we trust him. This basic gospel that we need to apply to our lives for the rest of our Christian lives. Every week we're repenting and believing. God, help me. God, enable me to be like you. Lord, I hunger for you. Lord, I want the fear of God in my life. But I want to know you. So they come in this contingency and they say, let us build with you, for we worship God as you do. No, you don't. We want to come and build the church with you. We want to come, in this case, we want to come and build the temple with you. And some people would say, okay, well, the loving thing to do would be to say, okay, we just open arms to everybody and welcome in. They say, we are worshiping God as you do, not the case. We have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of the king of Syria who brought us here. And that simply was not the case. And so the answer to them was, no, we're not going to have you build with us. Well, as soon as a position like that is taken, there comes discouragement because persecution comes with that. Oh, really? You're going to stand by what you think? Are you narrow-minded? Are you so bigoted that you would actually take this position of what you call truth? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to take this stand? Probably the most uh, quoted verse that we hear is, judge not. Don't judge me. And so as soon as the church takes a stand, as soon as these Israelites take a stand, no, you're not going to build with us. It's the most loving thing that they can do because they are loving God above loving man. Persecution comes in. And so people are ridiculed and they're reviled for their faith. And they began to discourage the people who were trying to build this edifice. They're trying to build this temple, and it's all of a sudden not working out. Look with me at verse 4. So here, the people of Israel, they're trying to build it on their own. But the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Discouragement comes in. The voice of uh, the adversary saying, you're not going to make it. You know, who, do you, who do you think you are that you can continue? Listen, in many ways, the Christian life is a lonely place. That's why we need the church. That's why we need to be here together, worshiping with one another and rejoicing with one another and praying with one another. Because the ridicule comes from the world. The persecution comes from the world that says, who do you think you are? You, you think that you can just make this thing on your own? You think that you're right and all that you say? And we're saying, no, we're standing underneath the authority and the truth of God. God, we come to you with, uh, with power and conviction. We have seen who you are. And our prayer should be, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. God, in the midst of a wicked generation, God, help our young people to stand up and say, I'm going to stand for the truth. This is why we dedicate our babies in this church. We say, oh, Lord, they're going to grow up in this, in this world where every time they turn on the TV, there's something evil, there's something wicked going on. Lord, every time they turn on their cell phone, God, we're trying to guard them against images and against music and against all sorts of things that are wicked. God, help them. Help them to stand strong on your word. There must come a point where we make a decision in our life where we say, Jesus, I'm going to go with you. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Jesus, I, I want you. You're the treasure. I'm going after you. I'm hungry for you. And so there, there comes discouragement. There comes 
uh, persecution. That's exactly what is going on here. And you would think that they would just say, well, we're going to keep building. But actually the temple, the temple building, comes to a screeching halt. Look with me at verse 24. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, it stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is during the time when Haggai comes in. And so for 16 years, from 536 to 520, the building of this temple stops. Now go down with me to chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, here they are, Haggai, which we are looking at in the past week or so, Haggai and Zechariah, the next prophet that we are going to look at, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here they had stopped laboring for 16 years, and finally God calls Haggai onto the scene, and he has a message for the people of Israel. So here's the picture. The foundation has been laid. But discouragement has come in, persecution has come in, the people have stopped the building of the temple, and they have been upset by all the words that have been uh, said to them, the, the ridicule, and so they begin to focus on their own houses. So here the, the temple of God is laying in ruins, and instead of focusing on that, they've become discouraged. And they are now looking at their financial considerations, and they start working on their houses. So they're working on their houses. They're working on their cars. They're working on their 401K. They're trying to get ahead in life with all that they're doing. And the house of God, the, the priorities of worship, the priority of the glory of God is finding second place. And so Haggai comes to them to stir them up. He says, you remember what it was like to know God. You know God. You came after God. And all of a sudden, at one point in your life, your faith began to slip. You were so hot at one point. You loved Bible study. You loved church. You're faithful in tithing. You were reading your Bible. You were praying. You liked talking with people who were other believers. And something else got a hold of you. All of a sudden, the work situation began to take preeminence in your life. All of a sudden, your house and all of the concerns of your home and paying for your kids, and they're a lot of money. And all of the concerns of paying for your children, going here and going there, you had soccer this, and basketball this, and football this. You wanted to make sure that you came home to a nice house, and what about that man cave or that kitchen that you wanted? What about that lake house, or what about those vacations? Or maybe it was just burnout. You say, I don't have money for any of that stuff. Or maybe you just felt like you had to work six days a week. It was just day after day of working. And you come to Saturday night and you get so tired, you're like, I, I can't get to church on Sunday morning. Sunday morning's the only, the only morning that I have to, to do anything. By the time I get to the afternoon, there's sports on and the kids have a party. And all that stuff starts at 12, 1 o'clock. So 
if I'm going to sleep in and try to get a little bit of rest, well, church is going to have to go out the window. And so people begin to slip. And by the way, when people begin to slip, and those who are well-intentioned and well-meaning, they begin to slip, there is something spiritually wrong. Somehow there has become a reversal of priorities. And so Haggai comes along in that day with those people's problems, and he says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, Consider your ways, verse 5. And then he says it again, verse 7. Consider your ways. If you back up to verse 4, he says, You dwell in paneled houses. You have a nice house. While the house, this house, this temple, God's house, lies in ruins. Consider your ways. Maybe it's time to take inventory and get back on track. And what a hopeful message this is. Because a lot of times a person thinks, Well, I have, uh, I've messed up. And I've begun to compromise in my life, and that's it. I, I tried serving the Lord, and at one time things were going really well, and I was consistent and faithful and in his word. And all of a sudden, over time, that decreased and became less and less in my life. You think, I'll never get that back. Well, here's a hopeful message from Haggai. Perhaps it's time to consider your ways. He says this. This is 16 years later. He says, go up to the hills. Verse 8. And bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified. God says, I want to be glorified, says the Lord. I want to take pleasure in what you're doing. The whole purpose of your life, the whole purpose of this temple is that God may be glorified. The glory of God, this is why we exist. God, help me to glorify you in everything that I do. God, I want, I want to know you. When we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about mirroring Him. In other words, we're a reflection of who He is. Here's God. Somebody says they, they look like God. They act like God. They're imitators of God. That is what it means to live for the glory of God. God, I want to live for your glory. And so these people being believing as they were, they obeyed the voice of the Lord in verse 12. They obeyed. Lord, I want to obey you. Yes, sir, Lord, I'm going to get back to work. Perhaps it's time for a reevaluation of plans. God, I'm going to get back on track. Lord, this is, this is a moment in my life where I make a recommitment to you, a rededication. God, I come back to you and I say, yes, Lord, I'm coming back. Lord, I'm coming back to you today. Why did they do this? Because of verse 12, the end of it. And the people feared the Lord. So the Lord says, okay, I want you to get back to work. I understand that you have been persecuted and ridiculed. That is all true, but I want you to get back to work on the temple. And then he takes some of the people who remembered the old temple. So he takes some of the older people. Been in exile for 70 years. So let's say one of them was four years old when they left. They would have perhaps remembered that first temple, and so now they're 74 years old. Here is an encouragement for, for those who are, are getting older. I by no means am old, but it's amazing how quickly the 20s and the 30s have gone by and now into the 40s, and uh, just saying, Lord, I, I want to know you. 
God, help me. And God continues to come back. He doesn't just come to new people at 18, 19 years old for, the, for their first time faith. He continues to come back over and over again. He encourages the souls of young men, yes. But he also comes and he encourages the souls of old men and old women. And he says, keep going. I've got a, a purpose and a plan for you. Recently I was listening to something where the preacher was saying uh, how many people had accomplished things in the later years of their life, not the earlier years. And so there are many people who say, well, uh, I, I've gotten to 40, I've gotten to 50, I've gotten 60, and burnout sets in, and all of a sudden they're talking about uh, not working anymore and just kind of retiring not only from their job, but also retiring from the things of the Lord. And the Lord says, oh, no, 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 you're just beginning. I've got great plans for you. So he takes some of these people who are older and he brings them to this temple that they're building. The foundation of the temple has been laid. It's been laid now for 16 years. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 3 to them. So he, he brings them to the temple. Haggai brings them to this foundation. He says, I want you to look around this foundation. And he says this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So who remembers Solomon's temple? That is what he's asking here, those who had seen it in all of its splendor. He says, how do you see it now? So they're looking at this foundation. They're saying, it is not what it used to be. It used to be so glorious. And it used to be so beautiful. And they're already looking at just the foundation of this building. And they're saying, it's not going to be what it used to be. In fact, we read in Ezra last week how there was weeping and wailing over it. When the older people saw the foundation being laid, they said, this thing is not like what the old temple was. They began to weep over it. God says to them, is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's nothing. Lord, how are you going to use this temple? God, we remember the good old days. We remember what you did in that temple, and now that thing is gone, and here we're building this thing, and it's not even nearly as beautiful as that temple was. But God has this astounding promise in verse 7. He says this, I will shake all nations. So this is a global shaking. God says, I'm going to shake the nations. I see that you're looking at this foundation, and it's not nearly what the foundation was and what the temple was in prior years. But he says this, here's what I'm going to do in the future, and I'm going to use you guys, he's saying, to do it. These people here at this point in time. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. By the way, uh, this is one place I like the King James here, a better in fact, Wesley wrote a song about this in the old days. But instead of the treasures of all the nations uh, shall come in, it seems better. The, the word there, uh, treasures, is actually in the singular. The King James has it this way, and the desire, not the treasures, the desire singular and the desire of all the nations shall come. So he is saying, listen, I'm going to shake the heavens and the desire of all the nations. This is a global thing. This is a global cosmic God that we are serving. So the desire of India, 
Where, where do people uh, find their final resting place in India? Well, they find it in Jesus. What is the desire of people in China that are, that are hungry? They hear the word of God and they're satisfied with Jesus. How about in the United States? Those who are still hungry to hear the word of God, the desire of not just one nation, but the desire of all the nations shall come in. This is a prophetic word here talking about the Messiah. Leslie talks about the desire of nations having its permanent home in our hearts. So he says, the desire of all nations shall come in. The Messiah is going to come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This house, this house with uh, this foundation that is not near as beautiful. God says, listen, I'm going to shake the nations. The desire of all the nations will come in. And I will fill this house, the one that you are currently building right now, even though it doesn't seem like it, even though you're wondering how this is going to be possible, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Then he says something spectacular in verse 9. He says, the glory of this house, that is the second temple that they are currently building, the glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So you think about Solomon and all this splendor and this beautiful temple that he had built. The gold, the majesty, the jewels, the courts, all of the things that he had built. And God is now talking to these elderly people and he's saying, listen, the foundation and the temple that you are building, the glory that is going to come into this house, this one that you're doubting about, is going to be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, peace. Peace is what we need. Somehow peace is going to come. So the desire of the nations is going to come. And the glory of this house, the glory of this specific temple, is going to be greater than the glory of the temple that had been built before. So the question is, how is that possible? Well, it's possible only in one way, and that is it was the Lord Jesus Christ the desire of all the nations who would minister in this temple that was refurbished and rebuilt by Herod the Great. So here comes the Lord Jesus in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, ministering in this very temple that these people were saying, how, Lord, how are you going to use this thing? Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Lord, the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. What temple is this? Well, this is the second temple. 
Of course, it had been renovated, but this is still the same place, the same mount where that temple was built, considered the second temple. So he comes into this, this temple that we are studying about here in Haggai. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. So here comes, here's Simeon, this older man, and he takes up baby Jesus, the Lord Jesus, in his arms. This uh, prophetic word that the glory of this temple would be glory, more glorious than the temple before. So he takes him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now notice this verse here, verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. There's all of our nations that we are talking about. A light to all nations. He's going to shake the nations. And here it is. And for glory. And for glory to your people, Israel. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, here it is, of the glory of God. How? How does he give us the knowledge of the glory of God? He gives it in the face of Jesus Christ. So here he brings these people to this temple. And he says, you remember the old temple? He says, this, this, uh, this new temple that you're building is going to have more glory than the former temple that you were familiar with. You know, there are some times in our lives when God brings us to a point of uh, healthy, uh, realistic self-evaluation. When we say, Lord, how are you going to use us? Lord, how are you going to use me? And by the way, just like these people were talking about this temple, Lord, how are you going to use this temple? We don't, we don't get it. In every believer's heart, if they really know Jesus, there comes a point in their life where there's a humbling that takes place. And a person says to themselves, see, in the, in the beginning, oftentimes people say, I can conquer the world, I can, I can do it all. But really, the Lord uses humble people so that he might be glorified. And so there comes a point in our lives where we say, Lord, I don't, I don't understand how you're going to use this situation. God, I don't understand how you're going to use my life. You're looking at perhaps even the edifice of your life. Perhaps you're comparing it to a former experience in your life, and you're saying, Lord, these two things don't even compare. And perhaps it is that the Lord is bringing you right to that point, right to that moment, so you can just say, God, I want you to be glorified in my weakness. Lord, somehow in my life, use this, uh, use this run-down temple edifice, this, this foundation that doesn't look that good. 
Now to come before you, and I ask you that somehow you would be glorified in my life. Look with me at a couple of verses. This is very healthy. Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. David says in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, he says this, What is man? Sounds very, very similar. Sounds a lot like these people looking at the temple. What is this temple? But how are you going to use this thing? This is what David is saying about himself. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? But I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, Lord, how, how are you going to use this? In fact, Paul even goes a little bit further. If you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's he calling us? He's, he's calling us clay pots. We just read about the glory of Christ in verse 6. Now he says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Then he goes on to say this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. So this temple that is in the Old Testament is pointing to another temple that would come, and that is the temple of the church, the body of Christ. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and here we are, dust, clay pots, and yet the Lord dwells within us and uses us in such a powerful way that he might be glorified. It says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that your body, here it is, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, so you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here the church and us individually, we are the body of Christ. And we have to come to a point of healthy self-evaluation. Lord, I recognize who I am compared to you, but I'm asking you that you would glorify yourself in me. God, would you glorify yourself in me? Would you say that with me? God, would you glorify yourself in me? God, would you glorify yourself in me? In me. Let's say that again. God, would you glorify yourself within me? Such a profound uh, prayer. Haggai has two more messages. We're only going to look at one. He has four in the book of Haggai. One is in chapter 1, verse 1. One is in chapter 2, verse 1. One is in chapter 2, verse 10. And the last message that he has is in chapter 2, verse 20. But he wants to make sure that the people understand the weight of their own sin. So here he is talking about this, this new temple that is going to be built. He's talking about the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the glory of the temple previously. And then he has some questions for the priests in particular, but also for all the people. And even for us now, because they had begun to minimize sin in their life, 
Here they were disobedient, and yet they were still in some ways trying to be religious. So God says, I want you to understand how the temple here works properly. You need to be cleansed of your sin. See, until we come to the point where we are actually cleansed of our sin, we'll never know God. This is why we start off by saying we're not going to pacify the world because we recognize that the only place that we're going to try to find true freedom and are going to find true freedom is in Christ. So he has a couple questions. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 12. He says this. He's asking them about being clean and being sinful. He says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does it become holy? So if you have holy food, they had holy food in the temple and they had consecrated food, food that was set apart. It says if you touch something that is unclean, does that unclean thing become clean? And the priest answered here in verse 12 and says, no. So the question here is, can our righteous sacrifices cleanse or make up for our disobedience? So if I say, well, I'm not going to live for God, but I'm going to go to church, will that make up for it? So here's what some people try to do. They try to pacify God. God, I'm not going to be obedient in my life. I'm not really going to surrender to you but perhaps I'll cleanse my life by doing a few religious things. Or perhaps I'll make it to church every now and then. Perhaps I'll listen to a Christian song. Maybe I'll even throw up a prayer. You hear people talk about saying prayers. And so they say, well, if I do a few religious things in my life, maybe I'll make the rest of my life clean. And God's, God's saying that's not how it works. You can't take a piece of holy meat and touch something that is unclean, and all of a sudden that unclean thing Becomes clean. Then he has a second question in verse 13. He says, Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It becomes unclean. So the question here is, Can our sin, our uncleanness, defile our sacrifices? So we come in and we say, Lord, I want to worship you, but we can't even lift our hands to the Lord. We're trying to mouth the words. We're trying to go through the formalities of worship, but our heart is not lifted up because our hearts are not clean. And what God is saying here through the prophet Haggai is, listen, you can go through all of the religious activities you want. You can go to church every Sunday and not be a Christian. You can do all sorts of good things. You can, you can say that you're religious and that you believe in God and that you say prayers and all these different things, but that will not magically cleanse your life. Whenever something unholy touches something that is holy or cleansed, it automatically defiles it. There's only one exception to that rule in the whole Bible. So whenever we touch something as unclean, we defile it and make it unclean. There's only one place in the whole Bible where the clean thing makes the unclean thing clean. And that is Jesus. Jesus has the power to touch the unclean thing 
And instead of him becoming defiled and him becoming unclean, Jesus touches the defiled thing or the unclean thing and makes it clean. Amen? And this precious. So here we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, I'm unclean, but I'm filthy. And God is saying, I don't care about your temple, that you're doing all these things. If you're coming with the spirit of disobedience, if your heart hasn't been cleansed and all these ceremonies pointed toward the cleansing of Christ. Look at John chapter 15, verse 3, John 15. John chapter 15. Verse 3 says this. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And look with me at Titus chapter 2. We close with this. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 14. The end of 13 it says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He came to buy us back from a life of lawlessness. And here it is, to purify or to cleanse. He came to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then Haggai closes by saying, listen, I'm going to do this through you, Zerubbabel, through a descendant like you. I'm going to make you like a ring. I'm going to honor the Davidic covenant. There's going to come one from your loins who is going to be the savior of Israel, the king of Israel, but he's not only going to be the king of Israel, but he's going to be the savior of the world who cleanses people from their sins. And then Haggai ends. What a, what a text. Would you stand with me as we close? If I could ask. Father, we ask you that you would You would cleanse us. Lord, there's people in this room, I'm sure, that don't know you. And God, I pray today that you would get a hold of the heart, perhaps even it's a, a religious heart, one who has been defiling everything, even their religious sacrifices are defiled because of their sin. Lord, you come in with uh, you come in with power and the cleansing grace of Christ. And you cleanse us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. First John one. Lord, that's throughout the whole scriptures. The point of the temple was Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is our Savior. I'd like to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, perhaps you're, you're standing here and you, you've come in, you've, you have uh, not been cleansed in your heart. Oh, you might have done some religious things, but you're not cleansed. You might know that there's a God, but you don't know God. You don't know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And perhaps you have been carrying around a weight that you recognize you can't carry anymore. That's too much for you. Perhaps you feel defiled and dirty. 
I'm saying, Jesus, I, 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 want, I want to be cleansed, cleansed for the first time, cleansed. If that's you, would you raise your hand and just say, I need Jesus for the first time, the cleansing, cleansing power, cleansing power of Christ. I'm going to ask a second question. This was, um, this was addressed to God-fearing people. Believers, and yet they had become defiled. So the second question is not for for unbelievers getting saved, but perhaps it's for you, and maybe it's your priorities have have begun to go in a different direction, and God is saying, consider your ways. Perhaps it's been a sin habit in your life that you know is wrong, and you love Christ, and you've been trying to get rid of it, but... Today you need to say, Lord, I feel defiled. And I'm recognizing that I'm doing certain things according to your will, but God, they're defiled because of the things I'm not doing right. And that's you. Perhaps something is just defiling you in your life right now. You say, I need to get rid of this burden. If that's you, would you raise your hand? You're a Christian, but you're just saying, I need to get rid of this thing in my life. I need to get rid of it. I need to get rid of it. Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, help us. Help us to pay attention to your word. Help us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I